Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we do need your direct support to be able to continue the show and keep exploring a lot of perspectives sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value these conversations, you can reciprocate support for us starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. Also, we recently launched our fundraising Green Dreamer planners. They include the major socio-ecological awareness dates, gratitude sections, inspirational quotes from our past guests, weekly suggested grounding actions, and more. And they're made with recycled paper, bound by recycled craft paper, and protected by optional recycled cotton book lots. But more importantly, I designed them intentionally to support our mental well-being. So if and only if you do make good use of physical planners, I'd love for you to check them out at greendreamer.com planners. Final notice, we are taking a two-week holiday break after this episode while we prepare for more perspective-shifting conversations to come. But we have so many timeless episodes in our archives at this point, I hope you might use this time to catch up on some of our earlier content. For now, on to today's episode where we're speaking with Edgar Villanueva. The justification that these organizations make is like, you know, we, we have to make smart investments and as the market goes up, then that's going to generate more money for grant making in the future. And that's, you know, it's, there's truth in that, but it's also sort of like imagining sitting in a warehouse of sandwiches and not wanting to give someone up something to eat right now because they're they're basically saying in the future there will be people who are hungry. So I need to hold on to these sandwiches. A globally recognized author, activist, and expert on social justice philanthropy, Edgar is the author of the best-selling book, Decolonizing Wealth, and the founder and principal of Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital. We begin here as Edgar shares about his early inspirations to enter the world of philanthropy. I am from North Carolina. I'm an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe, which is a tribe situated in the southeastern part of the state there. And I think as part of my growing up there with the type of mother that I had, who was very both culturally, I think, influenced by our native culture, but also from our faith tradition, was just a person that was very engaged in community service. We spent a lot of time in community taking care of people, taking care of children in the neighborhood. And that was just sort of what was taught to me that I had a responsibility to to give back. Although we were very poor, we were generous with what we had. And, you know, I was taught different faith traditions, such as tithing in the church, that 10% of everything that you earned belonged to God, that you had needed to give it back. And so some of those fundamental kind of, I think, teachings and inspiration from my mother pushed me toward a career in the nonprofit sector. It was um, pretty early in my career. I was coming out of grad school having worked for a number of years in sort of health equity, health justice-focused nonprofits, I was recruited by a foundation and began my first role in institutional philanthropy when I was 28 years old at a foundation there. And that was 
kind of how it all happened. Um, a lot of folks at that time didn't plan careers in philanthropy. We all kind of stumbled into the field. It's it's increasingly become a, a place where more folks aspire to, to work. But back then, which I'm kind of dating myself almost 20 years ago, you just kind of stumbled into these opportunities. And once I got into the field, I began to really understand more what my job actually was. I'm aware that early on you faced an identity crisis after you began working in philanthropy, which led you eventually to the idea of viewing money as medicine. Can you talk more about the internal struggles you were called to confront and what you mean by working with money as medicine? Yeah, I think at a certain point, once I got inside of what some people refer to as the ivory tower, you know, I was moving millions of dollars a year which was quite, you know, an interesting space to be in as a person who did not grow up around wealth or money. And, you know, there were lots of privileges and perks that came with the job and having that access to resources and power. And I really took my job seriously to to really follow through with the mission and to move money to places where I saw the need was the greatest and where people were doing fantastic work. But I began to see that things were always, you know, adding up and that the majority of the resources we were moving were going to kind of the, the the same network of organizations, large, prominent organizations. Very few people of color were benefiting from the resources, and there was there was no intentional work happening to direct resources, you know, in a, in a way that was inclusive. And I, at a certain point in time, began to feel a little bit disillusioned. Honestly, I felt like I, you know, I had been sort of had my hand slapped a few times and been told to sort of keep my head down and do my job when I asked questions or kind of push back in, in ways around how things were operating. And at a certain point in time, I left the field for a period and was seeking counsel from an elder of mine in North Carolina named Donna. And I remember meeting with her and saying, you know, Donna, I just, I don't know if philanthropy is the place for me. I've done some good work. But it's it's actually it's just a lot of like politics and just things that, that feel yucky to me. Like I, I don't know if it's the place where I can have the most impact. Maybe money is like this dirty thing, and when you're working with money, people just behave in strange ways. And so I'm looking and searching for a different place that I can have influence in the world. And it was in that conversation that Donna actually said to me that the medicine that had chosen me was money. And that sent me on a, a tailspin to really understand fully what she meant because, you know, here I am thinking that money is something that is like this evil force in the world. And um, there was a, a lot of politics and, and power struggles around money. And she was equating money as to something as medicine, to something that is really sacred in our communities. That's a something that's a life-giving force, something that restores balance. And I began to understand in that moment that I had actually been called to this work and that it wasn't about the money. It was actually about us as people, people who invented money. It was about how we have used money historically to harm communities and to cause division and separation. But if we could use money in a different way towards a healing, reparative purpose, the money actually can be sacred, something that could be used as medicine. What a beautiful reframe to honor and recognize its potential to aid our collective healing. 
A critical part of your work has been to situate the role of philanthropy inside of the historical context, which essentially gave way to its birth and rise. What made this backdrop so important for you to center in discourses on philanthropy, perhaps to remind people what it really should be about? You know, when I started my career, I was working at a foundation that was, the the office was on an old plantation in North Carolina. And it was literally that physical presence of, of everyday driving into this plantation to this beautiful, beautiful place and knowing the history there and understanding that through the taking of, of land from indigenous folks in that community, through the labor of slaves that had built wealth for this family, this, this dynasty of old money, tobacco, the Reynolds family, all of the, the policies and, and systems that have been built to privilege this family that led to the vast accumulation of wealth. I, I could not, for the life of me, understand or justify when I began to try to fund in Black communities, why it was so hard, right? Mm. It, I literally could see the direct correlation between that, his, that, that history and the contributions that people of color made that, that led to this wealth. And now those communities were not benefiting in a fair way from that wealth. And so for me, that's such an important element for us all to understand that behind money, behind wealth and privilege that we we all enjoy it at some level in this country. There, there is a history behind that. We, we now um, see it even more in the past couple of years and, and really in 2020 with the pandemic where the richest folks in this country be, got even wealthier while folks who are, are really have been struggling, we saw more and more poverty. And there's just, there's a history behind this wealth gap that we see and the reason that this gap continues to grow and especially why people of color, Black and Indigenous specifically in the communities that I work in, grossly disproportionately experience that gap. And so I, I truly believe that in order to change the future, to come up with solutions and to you know create a world in which we all can thrive, it, it deeply depends on understanding how we got here and understanding the wrongs that need to be repaired so that we don't continue to repeat that history. Right. So it's really raising the important questions of like how these few individuals and corporations and foundations have amassed so much wealth to even be able to give back today. And mm -hmm. as a part of your vision of how we can heal, you bring in the role of apologizing. And especially within a field like philanthropy, I think people might feel like, you know, this work is all about giving and doing good. So what is there to apologize for? I'd love for you to share more about how you've witnessed the power of accountability and apologies in support of healing beyond just the transaction of providing funding, and how perhaps you've seen people's mindset shift from giving to affirm one's superiority and power over towards seeing this work as giving to heal and make amends. Yeah, you know, it's it's the steps to, to healing that I often talk about in my work, one of them being apologizing are really rooted and grounded in thinking about how we repair relationships, right? And they come from sort of indigenous practices of restorative justice. And apologizing is just really critical. It, it is really an expression of, of deeply understanding and taking accountability and ownership for 
what has happened in the past. And so when it comes to, to money um, and foundations, you know, we have to be honest that although philanthropy does all types of good in the world, I'm, I'm, I'm not anti-philanthropy. I can go on and on about the critical role the sector plays in advancing all types of good in the world. We have to also hold the complexity that philanthropy as it exists as a $1 trillion industry in this country is a byproduct of an economic system that has been extremely extractive and harmful to, to communities and so in order to repair the relationship with community and philanthropy and with many other sectors that I've, I've seen kind of following suit around taking ownership and apologizing, we have to acknowledge and apologize for where the wealth came from, almost always from the theft of land and resources and the exploitation of low-wage workers. I think apologies are due for how wealth has been maneuvered out of appropriate taxation and um, really how a lot of folks with wealth have shirked their responsibility for, for paying taxes and providing for the common welfare and putting resources into the public system that would pay for infrastructure and public schools and elder care and all of that. So I think that it, it's, it's really about acknowledging and, and saying you're sorry for what has gone down um, for being complicit in that system that continues to benefit a small number of people in this country. And, you know, with any relationship, if you, if there's something that's broken, if there's something that's misunderstood, if there's something that has been done that hurts the other party, apologizing is a profound step uh, that we, we, we take in those relationships to begin to repair. Yeah. And certainly, you know, just giving apologies is definitely not enough. But I also feel like it can't be glossed over because there's the important human element of healing relationships through taking accountability and responsibility for the traumas that certain people may have disproportionately caused. And broadly speaking, as we discussed, inside of this extractive system, those who have the most financial wealth to give away or give back are those who have historically exploited, extracted, and stolen the most. And so with this in mind, I've been thinking about the idea of being a change maker or a change agent, and that a lot of wealthy philanthropists of the 1% are striving to set the agenda of what change for our future may look like. And this gets me to question, is philanthropy really an industry of change where the idea of doing good is what is being bought and sold shaped and then funded and materialized. And by extension, given how philanthropy came to be and who was behind a lot of this giving disproportionately, might the idea of what doing good even means have been watered down or influenced to align with the extractive system so that it doesn't fundamentally challenge those feeding these resources in the first place? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack in there. And I think questioning the net value of philanthropy in general is, is sort of what you're getting at. And I think it's a very valid question. Philanthropy as an industry, again, does a lot of good, right? And however, within the same confines of this industry, there's a lot of bad things that are happening or and that are actually, you know, in real time harming communities and perpetuating injustice. And so it's really challenging to kind of exist in this system and to hold those complexities where we're doing good with our right hand, but with the left hand, we are doing things that sort of undermine the the good that we set out to do. <laughs> so I've, I say to folks, uh, you know, I give these examples where they're like really 
well-meaning foundations out there in the world who are doing and funding fantastic, really important work like criminal justice reform, for example, right? And are bringing a, a justice lens to that. But these same foundations have investments and endowments that are wrapped up in all types of extractive and harmful industries, including private prisons, which, you know, really makes absolutely no sense to me when, when, when that's happening. But it's an industry that where the incentives are aligned with capitalism and are aligned with wealth building, which is really focused, you know, for the most part on getting out of paying taxes and investing in Wall Street to like build up these endowments more so than actually putting money into community the vast majority of philanthropic capital, money where that has ex- escaped taxation, where corporations and wealthy folks get a major tax write-off, the vast majority of that capital, we're talking about a trillion dollars here, actually never sees the light of day. It never even gets the community. It's actually invested in private industry to build more wealth. And so that's where the nuance of like injustice lies for me. I think, you know, we can look at the grant making and the money that actually gets the communities to point out all types of ways to improve that and to bring a justice lens to that. But the industry overall has a lot of work to do to kind of align with a a charitable purpose. And this is what's frustrating, I think, and what's dangerous and undermines our democracy is when a wealthy few and corporations can actually put money into this vehicle get the tax um, benefit, not have any public benefit, and for the resources that do actually have public benefit, really bring an agenda that can influence our public systems in ways that may be counter to the uh, way that we want to see our society function. So there's a lot in there with the good that philanthropy does. There's a lot of things that we need to be aware of and we need to kind of call out and hold the sector accountable for. Yeah, and certainly not to paint a broad stroke, but to name the more concerning and questionable side. I've been thinking of the Walton family with their interest in wanting to privatize water and the Colorado River and their Walton Foundation, which has given away so much money to organizations working on research and conservation of the river who have essentially become reliant on that funding. And as the Waltons continue to pursue their agenda of gaining control over the river, those who've been working most closely with the river are becoming metaphorically muzzled in fear of their funding being pulled. And Mm -hmm. one group actually did have their funding pulled when they became outspoken against other funded projects working to build dams, for example. And on a similar note, I'm also thinking of the Gates Foundation, which gave away an over $11 million grant to MasterCard, whose own revenue tops $15 billion a year for their initiative to financialize Nairobi, Kenya, and beyond basically creating a system where big money can eventually extract wealth out of every financial transaction within local communities. And so these are the types of giving that have been very concerning for me because they are taking advantage, as you said, of the tax incentives of giving to set the stage, pry open or establish markets to then be able to profit off of through their other for-profit investments and ventures. And so with this said, I'm just curious to hear your experience and thoughts on how prevalent this is relative to like the the work that is truly in support of healing and regeneration and any other insights you might share on this in general. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a both and situation for me. Uh, there there's absolutely folks who are abusing <laughs> 
the system. Um, and I don't even know, like, it's almost like hard to say abusing because the system exists and it's legal. We, we, the people allow it to exist if we, but they are taking advantage of, of the loopholes and in, in a system that has zero accountability on the philanthropic sector. And there's such a lack of transparency that even to understand and know about some of the stories you've named is, is really hard to kind of uncover because philanthropy has provided lots of vehicles for people to move money in ways that kind of go under the radar. You know, the very DNA of this sector in the United States, and for folks who, who hear this, they should understand that we the, the philanthropic sector in the U.S., this is a, a really like a unique thing here. Like We don't see this in other countries, right? Because it really absolutely is a wealth building uh, tax avoidance kind of thing that was created here in the States. And in the very DNA of this sector were our rich people who were decided to use money as a, a, a PR cover up for very bad things that were happening with their companies. And then those same rich people went to, to, to Congress and said, hey, we should also get a tax write off from this. And there was uh, there there was the birth of this philanthropic industry, mm-hmm. which is both sort of like covering up and PR reputation laundering, as my friend Anand calls it, you know, to like thinking about ways to actually benefit and build wealth off of those so-called charitable acts. So those motive, motives are sort of in the DNA of this this industry. All that being said, at the same time, I will acknowledge that. There are a lot of people who have wealth in this country who are on the right side of history. And especially, you know, I'll kind of tip my hat toward a lot of younger people who are inheriting wealth, who just happen to be born into a family, not by their, you know, we don't choose which families we're born into. And they're just handed like large amounts of wealth that's being passed down. And we're seeing the, the largest generational transfer of wealth happening right now. And lots of those folks are, are really thinking about and acknowledging sort of this, this system that's been rigged in their favor. And they want to try to right those wrongs by redistributing that wealth and especially to communities of color in the form of reparations. I will say in the last three years with the work that we've been doing, I have been really astonished by some some ways I see the industry um, beginning to change in a way, that, and, and especially with like individual donors who I see kind of stepping up. Some of the demands that I made or ideas that I put out into the world three years ago, you know, frankly, I, I didn't think anyone would ever do it. Uh, I was just trying to like push buttons and to get people to imagine a different way to use resources and I'm really excited to say that there are a number of um, organizations who are following through with, you know, uh, some of these ideas. And so I, I'm hopeful that, you know, there's a lot of work to be be done. I don't want to be naive about, about that. And definitely, I think the motivations for a lot of people with wealth are in the wrong, are, are are really off. But there there are many who are trying to shift this and to use money in a different way. That gives me um, some level of hope. <laughs> Mm, That's very affirming for this to come from you. And you kind of touched on this earlier, but even for philanthropies that are giving back with principles of reciprocity and really honoring community leadership and self-determination, philanthropies across the board are required to give 5% of their financial capital. And they often invest the rest of the 95% in order to have some revenue so they might at least cover the 5% that they do give. So I guess my question would be, are investments seeking an ROI in the form of financial gain 
Do you see this as inherently extractive given the limiting ways that our current economic system understands and assigns monetary value? And otherwise, how could philanthropies invest the 95% in ways that are aligned with healing so that their investments do not end up working against their giving? Yeah, I mean that this this is really the, this is like the 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 multi billion dollar question here that's so mm-hmm. important. And you're right. So um, there is an act of Congress that required foundations, private foundations, um, to pay out five percent of a three year rolling average. And what's what's interesting just about that part of the story is that foundations were being started. And then money, they weren't even making grants. And it took an act of Congress to force foundations to pay out a minimum amount of money. And that 5% that is called the minimum payout rule has become the ceiling. That's what most private foundations pay out. There have been a number of campaigns to push foundations to do more. Some do. And there's also been campaigns to ask Congress to increase the minimum payout rule beyond 5%, which was put in place in 1976. At any time those campaigns start up, foundations um, organize themselves to squash and kill those bills. So, But your question around what's going on with the 95%, we know from research that the vast majority of these endowments, these investments are invested actually in harmful and extractive industries. About 85%, I believe is the last number that I saw, where of investments that are tied up in making weapons, private prisons, fossil fuels. And so literally money that was donated where folks get tax relief is being invested in private markets that are actually hurting us, which is really like the hardest thing for me to get my mind around and to, to see any type of you know rationale behind this. Like we should be taken to the streets to demand a change. Now there is, given this like terrible problem, this is where we see the most opportunity for improvement. And there have been a number of foundations to commit to aligning their investments 100% with their mission. And there's been more and more folks who are doing impact investing in those types of things. The truth, though, even with those commitments, it's actually hard because the investment side of the house is completely 100% aligned with financial markets and the same type of incentives. And so, you know, I've talked with these foundations who have said we're going to invest 100% in a way that's mission aligned, and, and, and it's hard. And so folks have kind of settled on where, well, this is the, the least amount of harm that I can do, acknowledging that, you know, it's just, it's just really hard. I think where we have to go with that is to both in the short term continue to push foundations to disclose where they're investing. Many don't even share that information publicly. It should be public. Two, I think we have to continue to push them to divest and to invest in different ways. And three, also just to question the perpetuity of foundations. Like, why are why are foundations all about wealth building and growing endowments versus moving money? I think more foundations need to examine the, the need for doing that and to think about spending down and redistributing that wealth and just handing it over to people of color versus you know, building walls around wealth and protecting wealth and and being focused on growing endowments. And with that extra scrutiny, this is why we see the rise now in donor advised funds, because foundations are beginning to have more and more critique. And so now instead of starting a foundation, people with wealth can actually go to a fidelity or to any um, fiscal institution and create a donor advised fund where there is zero restrictions or, or mandates around payout on DAFs, so donor advised funds. 
And now the vast majority of philanthropic capital actually sits in those vehicles. Fewer people are starting foundations like they did years ago. Mm. And to these points, I was also curious to hear from your experience and knowledge, are philanthropies generally growing in their overall financial capital that they steward, or are they are they usually decreasing in the amount of money that they hold with an intention of maybe one day fully embodying and becoming one with the decentralized work of healing and regeneration that they're giving back to? So in other words, if the intention were to give back in support of healing wounds from historic violence, extraction, and exploitation, can or should we expect institutional philanthropies committed to decolonization, at least, to be working themselves sort of out of existence? That's the goal. I, I think that any foundation that's really serious about decolonizing, what we're going to ultimately see there is a, a radical shift in the ownership of those resources. We're going to see the resources being redistributed and then handed back over to the community. You know, there there are many foundations now as a result of our work who are doing the examination and sort of reckoning with their histories and and thinking about ways to right the wrongs. We've seen foundations committing to paying out reparations as in in direct alignment with what's kind of coming to light from those times of reckoning. Um, But the challenge is, you know, even foundations who are making large commitments, you know, they they are uh, getting that money back the next year in a return. And And so foundations are getting larger and larger because most foundations, even progressive foundations, are not willing to give at a rate that is going to cause their overall level of assets to decrease dramatically. And and so giving tends to flow with the market when we see sort of right before the pandemic when the market was dropping dropping at a time where communities were (laughs) majorly in, in crisis. A lot of foundations pulled back on their giving and and or even took like a year off from giving. And then, of course, with during the pandemic, the, the market started soaring as, as it was um, earlier this year and foundation giving is up. And so the justification that these organizations make is like, you know, we, we have to make smart investments. And as the market goes up, then that's going to generate more money for grant making in the future. And that's, you know, there's truth in that, but it's also sort of like imagining sitting in a warehouse of sandwiches and not wanting to give someone uh, something to eat right now because they're they're basically saying in the future, there will be people who are hungry. So I need to hold on to these sandwiches. And so it's it's really a, a, a mindset of scarcity kind of thinking that there will not be wealth around in the future. There will always be wealth and resources. And so to hoard them now when we could be distributing these resources and supporting people who are in crisis is really um, counterintuitive. And it's really kind of getting back to some of these tenets of fear and greed that are connected to colonial ways of being and thinking about money. Yeah, this really leaves me with this difficult question that I'm sitting with, which is, does philanthropy in the forms that they exist in today sort of create a dynamic where its continued ability to support healing and justice are basically contingent upon continued extraction and exploitation elsewhere and in other forms? Is it just the nature of how philanthropy might perhaps disproportionately fund projects that are seeking more immediate outcomes? Like, With all this in mind, are they capable of actually aiding change across deeper time and helping us to get to the roots of addressing the underlying sickness of modernity beyond just alleviating their symptoms? 
Yeah, you know, I I, I want to think at some level it's it's possible, but we have to be realistic. I mean, looking looking at history, we know that philanthropy has always played a major role in supporting social movements. We we know through research that uh, even during like the civil rights movement, there were individual philanthropists and institutional funders who were supporting work that was like even at times off the radar, and it takes money for social movements to, to grow and to build power and to have infrastructure. At the same time, it's, you know, I, I think that social movements have to be like super aware and, and of what, what's happening and, you know, at, at large, because like, and who you're taking money from and how the money was made and where people are now. For me, I try to, I have to hold all these complexities every day. Cause I think it's, for me, it's a lot of it is connected to what is the intent of the donor in this moment if money was somehow earned in a way that was extractive in the past, is there at least an acknowledgement and apology and, and a way to like think about using the money differently now that, that it's going to help atone in some way for, for that money? All money is dirty at some level when you begin to kind of like trace it back. But we also have to be like wide awake about how some philanthropists and corporations and foundations are trying to invest and move money now. And for folks who are working in social movements, for example, to just be really uh, having some discernment around who we take money from and what what their intentions are, because there are absolutely folks who want to throw money here to um, sort of appear to be on the right side of history, but have no intentions of making any change within the way they're they're using money or extracting resources from from communities. So it, it is it is quite complex. I think that even the most radical progressive foundations who really work hard to be like in solidarity with movement, when you begin to peel back the layers of the onion, you're going to see that, you know, there's going to be some investments that are tied up and and whack stuff Mm -hmm. and giving up that, that last stronghold of power and ownership of making the decisions about that money. There's still probably going to be a rich white man somewhere at the bottom of, of that, that's signing off and, and, and giving permission and approving things. And so that's where it's really, really hard to, to find, find, find the, the righteousness in all of this. But I, I do think it's possible. Um, and that it's going to just have to come down to redistribution. What we saw and what we know during times of crisis, like the pandemic, is that in community, we know how to take care of each other, right? We know how to protect each other, keep each other safe. We know how to do mutual aid in ways that really centers um, value and relationship in the planet. And so I think that if we can transfer capital and resources into other places, we're going to see philanthropic money being able to be moved and used in a way that, that does align with sort of social justice values and will help advance justice. And more foundations, I think, are, are tuning into that, into these networks and, and thinking through ways to redistribute capital in that way, because it's, it's just really hard for these big institutions who have been doing things a certain way for, for some of them hundreds of years now. On this note, perhaps to speak to our possibilities, from my recent conversation with Conda Mason of Jubilee Justice, mm-hmm. we explored the different forms of currencies there are and what we've lost as financial wealth has been extracted, privileged, and centralized. And so for listeners who haven't listened to that episode, I mentioned my observation that broadly speaking, as sovereign communities' demand and supply of their needs and goods become commercialized, as various roles become professionalized, and as the production of 
food and other products become industrialized, on paper, we'll likely see a rise in the financial wealth of the community. But in reality, through all of these processes, the other less quantifiable forms of wealth like social, relational, spiritual, and love capital seem to be compromised and exchanged for the more transactional currency of financial capital. And so I wonder if you've thought about the idea of money as medicine that you shared in the beginning as a way to honor and see money for what it is, which is merely a representation of value. So we might begin to or work harder to revive other forms of capital through how philanthropic money and reparative resources are being given back or utilized. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that conversation. I have so much respect for Conda, and that sounds like it was a lit conversation. <laughs> you know, I, um, I, yes, is the answer to the question. I think that kind of getting back to like what money even is, right? Like it's like, it's not even a real thing. It's paper. It's like zeros and ones. It's like data. And it really is about people. And I, I think what we try to do at Decolonize Wealth Project is really center everything in, in relations. And, you know, before we had these systems of exchange that were so steeped in, in transaction, we know like an in indigenous culture that it was very relational. And a lot of the problems that we have in communities now as a re, you know, result of capitalism and colonization didn't exist before, right? And it's, it's funny, like, um, I'm going to say something that I hope does not come across as, as insensitive at all. But as a Native person, because like relationship is so, such a deep, deep, deep part of our culture in the way that we see the world and the way that my family interacts, I've never, even despite a financial struggle in the past, I've never worried about becoming homeless. Like it just wasn't even a thing that I thought would be possible because of relationship, right? Like my, my family, my community would, would just never allow it unless it was my choice, right? Like if I just refused to receive, receive the help or the shelter that they would offer. And that's just the way that it is because it is, it is very relational. And so I think that that is a big part of what's missing um, at the end of the day, like people and our connection to each other and our connection to this planet just are, it is really the richest form of wealth. And how many of us know people who have plenty of money, but they're actually really sad and they don't have, you know, they question the motives of everyone around them and, you know, they lack authentic uh, relationships in, in their lives. And so I, I think it's really important. One of the things that we do um, as part of our work, you know, we talk about money a lot. We do workshops. We we um, speak to all these issues. We support donors. We're thinking through like moving money with a racial justice lens. We undergird everything that we do in healing. And uh, we have an indigenous healer on our team. We hold ceremony, we bring, we hold healing summits and we acknowledge sort of like the trauma that money has caused. And it's not because of the money, right? Again, it's because of people and the way people have treated each other because of money um, and the scarcity mindsets and the greed. And those types of bad behaviors also exist in communities where people are very wealthy, right? The distrust, the the isolation and and um, the lack of intimacy that can exist in some of those circles. So we we are all about kind of healing the human relationship and and bringing ancestral wisdom into conversations and, and spirituality, honestly, to undergird everything that we're doing and talking about with money, because ultimately it is about 
relationship and money is just a a proxy for an exchange of, of energy and it's not even that deep compared to what's really important which is which is people and our connection to one another we wandered to the little stream among the river floods and i remember willow trees i We strolled the Spanish marketplace at 90 in the shade. What's been an impactful publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? This is probably a, a strange answer, but a book that I think that everyone should read if they haven't read is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And I, I talk about this book in my book, and it's not because I think a lot of Dale Carnegie, I actually don't know a lot about him as a person. Hopefully he's not a, was too terrible of a person, but <laughs> this was a book that was put out in the 30s. And I just, as a child, I came across this book because my mom was a domestic worker and I picked it up in some house that she was cleaning. But what I think is like fundamental about this book, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately, it really is about how to build relationships with people, how to win friends and influence people. It's really like how not to be like a jerk, like how to how to actually listen to people and be genuinely like interested in them. And I feel like something has changed in the world, like with you know, not only the pandemic and everything moving online, but also, you know, social media. More and more, we're just getting super disconnected. And I've noticed that like the, the ability to really listen and be present with people is like a, a, a lost art form. And there's nothing that's more important kind of getting back to our conversation about relationships. So it, it really is some, something I've tried to practice as a kid. And I think that it has paid off for me to kind of put some of those, those things into practice that Dale Carnegie talks about in that little book. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? For me, it is, um, I'm from the state of North Carolina, and our state motto, and I may be mispronouncing the Latin here, um, is Iste Quam Videra, which means to be rather than to seem. And that is something that my mom used to actually quote that to me growing up. And so it's really to be authentic and, and, and be real and just genuine as much as I can be at all times versus trying to put on a performance and, and be someone that I'm not. So that's my goal in life. Mm, as we should all um, strive to be as well. And what gives you the greatest source of inspiration right now? I'm super inspired by my people, by Native American folks. And you know, this is Native American Heritage Month, and I've, I've just been thinking about all that's happened this past year. And I've never been just so inspired by my contemporaries and the the women um, who are in public office and Secretary Holland, who is in the in the cabinet. And we have folks who are killing it in the entertainment industry with these amazing TV shows for the first time ever. We have all Native cast and all Native writers for shows like Reservation Dogs, which is, which is on Hulu and amazing. So I'm just like, I'm so inspired. I remember as a child not having Native people that I that I could look up to. And now I'm just surrounded by the the brilliance of, of relatives who are just killing it across so many different industries. So that is just making me uh, smile every day. 
Mm. And I'm sure so many Native children are looking up to you as someone who's breaking barriers within the field of philanthropy as well. And while we are coming to a close, but to our listener, if you want to learn more about Edgar's book, Decolonizing Wealth, and to stay updated in general, Edgar's website is decolonizingwealth.com. And he's also on Instagram at Villanueva Edgar and on Twitter with the same username. Edgar, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and a huge honor to have you here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I, w- I would say for everyone to think about uh, your own healing and what you need to do to get on a healing journey and so that you can be well enough to support other people in their healing journey. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends and loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is I Remember by The Awakening Orchestra. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, our production manager is Tammy Gunn, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>